following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Feeling good? I got to tell you, I'm feeling good this morning because I am two days away from leaving on vacation with my family. So we're really excited. Yes, we'll be uh, road tripping along the West Coast, along Highway 1. So pray for us that we have a great time connecting with each other, that we um, stay safe on the road, and that we don't kill each other being in a minivan together for a couple of weeks. So uh, excited about that. Excited about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, the second book in the Bible, second book in the Old Testament as we dive in together today. In 1909, Carl Jung introduced to the world of psychiatry um, a, a simple tool called a word association test. The basic idea was that the therapist would read a, a list of 100 seemingly random words, and the client was supposed to respond with the very first word that, that came to her mind. Um, the, the therapist was listening not only for the word that was said in response, but also measuring the time that it took to come up with the word and also looking for patterns, looking for connections between the words that were uh, responded. And so the basic idea behind this simple tool is that the first word that comes to your mind tells you something about yourself. The first word that comes to your mind tells you something about what's going on inside. It it reveals something about you. And so this morning, I want us to do a little, uh, a little word association test together, just with one word though. And of course, because there's about 600 of of you or so in the room and a whole bunch more watching online, we're not going to respond out loud, but I, I want you to pay attention to the word that, that immediately comes to your mind. What is the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word God. Did you get it? Right? Maybe for some of you it was Jesus. Maybe for some of you it was love. Maybe it was Bible. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was something completely altogether different than that. But, but it tells us something. The first word that comes to our mind when we think about God. A.W. Tozer once observed that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you can think. What Tozer said is that the reason that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing you can think because what you think about when you think about God determines your destiny. And by that, he didn't merely mean what happens to you after you die. He also meant what happens to you now. Because what you think about when you think about God determines the kind of person that you become. It determines who you are. It determines how you live. It determines what you love. That we become like the God that we worship. This morning, we're going to be looking together at a passage that actually allows us to do a little word association with God himself. Because this morning, we're going to see the very first word that God thinks of when he thinks about God. What is the very first word that God uses to describe himself? 
We're beginning a sermon series this week, a four-week series called The Name, where we're going to be taking this passage from Exodus chapter 4 and just expanding on it each week during this series. This passage from Exodus 34 is the most frequently repeated passage or referred to passage throughout the remainder of the Bible. It just shows up time and time again. It's language that we tend to use a lot around here because that's what the Bible does. This is God's self-disclosure to Moses. God's self-disclosure to us, the the clearest, most concise, most definitive verbal declaration of who God is. Now, I'll tell you, I've been greatly helped by a a little book called um, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. And if if you uh, find yourself drawn to the ideas that we're talking about, I would commend that book to you as an opportunity to kind of study along as we move our way through this passage. But we want to look at it this morning and and realize that, that this passage tells us some things about God and it tells us some things about us. Because if it's true that what you think about when you think about God determines your destiny, that what we find here not only helps us to know him, but to know how he would have us respond and to know who he would have us become. Now, when we pick up this passage in Exodus 34, we have to recognize that it occurs in the context of a much larger story. The story of the whole book of Exodus is ultimately about God's liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt. His deliverance of them miraculously and then taking them into the, to the desert and encountering them at Mount Sinai, making a covenant with them, with them, giving them his law, telling them how to live. Because you see, Israel has, has been living for 400 years in Egypt under oppression. They've been surrounded by Egyptian worship, Egyptian religion, Egyptian gods. And their thinking about who God is has become clouded. Just two chapters before the passage that we're going to look at this morning is the infamous story of the golden calf. And Moses has gone up the mountain to be with God, to to receive the tablets of the commandments. And and while Moses is away, the, the people throw a big party. They melt down all their jewelry and they craft an idol, a golden calf. And they begin to worship that calf. And this party Uh, this worship party is wild and crazy. They are drinking, dancing, having sex, all the things that my Baptist upbringing warned me about. And, And why in the context of worshiping the golden calf, would they be doing those things? Because that's what their neighbors did. That's what worship looked like, what religion looked like for, for Israel's ancient near Eastern neighbors, the way they worshiped the other gods. And God is saying to his people, I want you to be different because I am different. And just before this passage we're going to look at, Moses asked two things of God. He says, God, show me your glory and teach me your way. And this is God's response to that request. Look with me in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wicked, uh, wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. 
Now, it starts off all nice and and lovely and then ends with this thing about the grandkids. Don't worry about that. We're going to get there in a few weeks. And there's actually something really powerful that we're going to see when we get there. But this morning, we want to begin with just these first few phrases. God reveals himself to Moses, and the first thing that he tells him is his name. You see it there in your text, written as Lord in all capital letters, What you need to know is every time you see that word Lord in all capital letters in your Bible, it's not a title, it's a proper name. It is the name Yahweh, or at least that's what we think it would have sounded like because the Hebrew people actually stopped saying the name at some point along the way. This is what scholars refer to as the tetragrammaton, which just means the four-letter word, but not the kind of four-letter word that maybe comes to your mind when you hear a four-letter word. What we have here are these four letters in Hebrew equivalent to our Y-H-W-H. In the original, it doesn't actually have the vowels there. And so we've had to sort of guess what the, the word actually sounded like because they were so careful not to take the Lord's name in vain, not to misuse the divine name, that they stopped saying it. Instead, they got in the habit of when they were reading, when they came across this little word, they would actually say the word Adonai, the word that means Lord, a title. And so that's where we get this convention of using Lord in all capital letters for the divine name, Yahweh. Um, They went so far as to not ever print the name of God. Even the word G-O-D in a a Jewish context down to today, they wouldn't print those three letters together. They, They would leave out the O and just put a little dash in there. Because the idea is that paper at some point is going to be thrown away. And we don't want to in any way, even accidentally misuse the divine name. And so we don't even write it. They wouldn't say it. They, they wouldn't print it. And yet it seems as though this name, Yahweh, this name that, that God gives to himself initially to Moses at the burning bush and now repeated to him here, is connected to the present tense of the verb to be. I am. That's who God says he is to Moses in Exodus 3 when he meets him at the burning bush. I am. Interestingly enough, there isn't actually a present tense form of the verb to be in Hebrew. To, to this day, if you go and you go to Israel and you hear Hebrew spoken, they won't say the way we would say it. They won't say, I am hungry. They could say, I was hungry. And they could say, I will be hungry, but they don't say, I am hungry. They just say, I hungry. Reminds me when my kids were little, I hungry. They don't say he is tall. They say he tall. They don't even say the, 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 um, the present tense of the verb to be out of a concern to avoid misusing the divine name. And yet I think there's something powerful in us remembering the name that God has given himself, the name that God reveals to Moses. This name is a, is a character name. It's a covenant name and it's a personal name. Right? It's a character name. It says something about who this God is. Um, maybe some of you have names that have a particular meaning behind them. Maybe your parents were mindful of that when they gave you that name. Maybe you've uh, researched it and found out the meaning of your name and, and you, you like to sort of think of yourself that way. I looked up the name Barry, and uh, in Gaelic, it just means fair-haired. So that doesn't really apply. Um, 
In Welsh, apparently, it means spear thrower. I like that one better, but it doesn't really apply either. But God gives himself a name that has a real meaning to it. I am the one who is. I am who I am. I am who I will be. I will be who I am. It's, it's a way of God saying, I am consistent. I am constant. I am always the same. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Kim and I just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. We actually met 26 years ago. So we, we met one year and three days prior to getting married. Now, if you had asked Kim early on in that dating relationship and as we moved towards marriage, I think she would have said things like, Barry, he's, he's kind. Barry is caring. Barry is attentive. And it didn't take her long to realize the truth is Barry is sometimes kind and sometimes caring and sometimes attentive and sometimes something else entirely, right? But not so with God. God is who he is. His character is consistent. He is always compassionate, gracious. It's a, it's a character name. Second, it's a covenant name. It's the name that God gave for his people to, to know that they could trust him to keep his promises. And the idea was that every time they saw this name or every time they, they said this name or heard this name, they were to be reminded of God's covenant, his promises to his people. There's a rather bizarre story that's told back in the book of Genesis about God making his covenant with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And in that story, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. In the ancient Near East, when, when people went into a covenant agreement, made promises to each other, one of the ways in which they would sort of seal the deal was to take a bunch of animals and to cut them in half, to, to slaughter those animals, to, to rip and tear those animals apart and, and lay out the pieces. And then the people who were making that covenant together would walk between the pieces of those slaughtered animals. And it was a symbolic way of saying, may this happen to me if I ever break covenant with you. May I be ripped and torn. May I be slaughtered if ever I break covenant with you. And interestingly enough, in that story with God and Abraham, it is the presence of God in the cloud. It's only God's presence that passes between the pieces. It's God's way of saying, even if you are faithless, I will be faithful. That I would rather be ripped and torn and slaughtered than to break my promises to you. The name Yahweh is a covenant name intended to remind us that God keeps his promises. And third, it's a personal name. It's a name to, to, to use in a relationship with him. Uh, if you want to get to know me, the, one of the first things that you would know about me is my name. Hi, I'm Barry. Nice to meet you. But uh, Barry is not all that common a name anymore. And yet there still are hundreds, if not thousands of other Barrys uh, across the DFW Met- Metroplex. And so if you want to know me a little further, you might know then my proper name, Barry Jones. But it turns out I, I searched on Google and there are at least 19 other Barry Joneses in the Dallas area. 
One of them is in construction. There's one that's a property manager and another that's in sales. Apparently out there somewhere, there's a, a um, comedian magician named Barry Jones. So um, do with that what you will. Th- there aren't any other Barry Joneses that are the senior pastor of Irving Bible Church. So if you want to know me, you, you know my name, my proper name. You know what I do. And you know something of my story. That's what God is doing here. He's giving his proper name. And he's saying what he does. Inviting his people into a personal relationship with him. Among Israel's ancient neighbors, this was, this, this was just so much in contrast. Because Israel's ancient nearest neighbors, their gods were all finicky. Their gods were all capricious. God says, I am different. I want you to be different because I am different. Yahweh, Yahweh, a character name, a covenant name, a personal name. And then the very first word that comes to God's mind when he seeks to describe himself. Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate. Friends, isn't it good news to know that the very first word that comes to God's mind when he wants to describe himself is the word compassionate? Aren't you glad that he didn't say Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, severe and demanding? Or Yahweh, Yahweh, um, disappointed, angry. Or Yahweh, Yahweh, tolerant and disinterested. And yet, isn't that the way that we often conceive of God? So he just, he has these demands of us and and we just can't meet God's demands and and therefore he's, he's disappointed with us. Or maybe he's just indifferent. Does he really even care? Isn't it good news to hear that the very first word that God reaches for to describe himself is the word compassionate? I personally needed a fresh encounter with the compassion of God this week. I find myself just working, working, and, and I can get so busy and I can do so many things and I, I, I can work so hard and I'm doing all this stuff for God that I look up at some point and realize that I have done nothing to be with God. That I'm doing these things for him, but I'm neglecting him. I'm neglecting my own soul. I needed that reminder, a fresh encounter with the compassion of God this week. This uh, word for compassion that we have here, the Hebrew word is uh, rahum. Rahum. And interestingly, this Hebrew word is etymologically connected to the Hebrew word for womb, a mother's womb. And I think that connection is interesting because part of what rahum is all about is like a parent's love for a child. Um, 
Some of you know that, uh, that I just ended my 15 years serving on the faculty at Dallas Seminary. And so I'm finally having to clear out my office. I've been full-time here for two years, but still hadn't figured out how to get all the stuff out of my office that I accumulated over 15 years. And you can accumulate a lot of stuff over 15 years. And so I was over there on Friday just clearing out stuff from my office. And I came across a Father's Day card written by my son, Will, when he was just beginning to learn how to draw letters. And I just melted, right? A father's love for a child, a mother's love for her child. This is just a little glimpse of the love that God has for us. It's beautifully depicted in the book of Isaiah, verse, chapter 49, verse 15, where uh, Isaiah says, can a mother, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The Lord says, it seems impossible to even imagine that a mother could ever forget the baby at her breast. And yet, even if that were possible for her, it is not possible for me because his love for us, his compassion towards us, his mercy towards us is greater than we can possibly imagine and is only glimpsed in the deepest of human loves. Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious. This word for gracious here is the word hanun. Rahun va hanun. It's a, a matching, a rhyming pair. And uh, where Rahun is about God's feeling towards us, Hanun is about God's action towards us. It's what God does in response to that feeling. He shows grace. Where God's Hanun shows up throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's time and time again when God comes to Israel's rescue. Time and time and time again, Israel turns away from God. And all of their idolatry and all of their injustice and all of their sin, they continue to find themselves in misery and mess. And God comes and rescues them. Not because of anything that they have done, not because of any way in which they deserve it, but because he's compassionate. He shows them grace. It's interesting to note that the most frequently, or the, the, the first word that God reaches for to describe himself is also the word that the New Testament writers reach for most frequently to describe Jesus. When you look at the gospel accounts, the, the word used most often to describe the emotional disposition of Jesus is that he is moved with compassion. Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh, the incarnation of God's Compassion and grace. One of my favorite places that you see this is in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, Jesus is going around doing his ministry. And we read in verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks out and sees this crowd of people who are far from God, whose lives are in misery and a mess, he's moved with compassion. 
He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Imagine for a moment the kind of people that are most difficult for you to love. What are the kind of people that are most difficult for you to love? What is Jesus' disposition toward them? He is moved with compassion because he sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But I think that if we're all really honest, sometimes for some of us, the most difficult person to love is me, right? Myself, yourself. That we know all of our regrets. We know all of our shame. And what is God's disposition towards you? In your very worst moments, in your deepest place of shame, His disposition towards you is unchanging. He's compassionate, gracious. He sees you as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But he's come to rescue you. Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh, the incarnation of compassion and grace. This is what this passage in Exodus 34 tells us about God. What then does it tell us about us? What does it have to say about how God would have us respond? I think there's really two aspects of it. One is uh, the, the invitation for us here. The other is the responsibility for us here. The invitation for us here is to bring your misery and your mess to his mercy. Bring your misery and your mess to his compassion and grace. If we're really honest about our lives, we, we all go through seasons, all go through circumstances where we just feel miserable, right? That, 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 that it may be a struggle in your work. It may be a struggle in relationships. It may be someone you love that's suffering, some kind of pain that you're enduring. He's compassionate and gracious. For all of us, we're messy. And I'm really glad that we can be at a church where we can all just be really honest about the fact that all of us, including the ones standing on the stage, we're just messy. The invitation to you and me is to bring our misery and our mess to his mercy. One of the most beautiful and powerful books that I've read over the course of last year is a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. The subtitle is the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers, which is you and me. And just listen to these words. God's heart of compassion confounds our intuitive predilections about how he loves to respond to his people if they would but dump in his lap the ruin and wreckage of their lives. He isn't like you. Even the most intense of human loves is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. 
His power runs so deep that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. But we need to take those dark miseries to him. The invitation here is to bring our misery and our mess to his mercy, for he is compassionate and gracious. But then I believe there's a responsibility here for us. That if what's true about God, if the very first word that God reaches for to describe himself is compassion, and the very first word that that the biblical authors reach for to describe Jesus is compassion, what does God want to form in us? To be the the, the chief characteristic of, of who we are and how we live in the world. That as people, his people, he desires for us to be people of compassion. Paul captures this in, in, in a passage that has just meant so much to me in my life. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort one another with the comfort we ourselves have received from him. He is the father of compassion. He wants to form in us as his children lives of compassion. We want this place at Irving Bible Church to be a place of healing, a place where messy people can can come and experience God's healing love in their lives. And yet we don't want to just gather here to experience God's healing love. We want to be sent into the world to bring God's healing love, to bring God's healing love to our schools, to bring God's healing love to our neighborhoods, to bring God's healing love to our workplaces, to be agents of his compassion and grace in the world. Friends, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you can think. Because what you think about when you think about God determines your destiny, not just what happens to you after you die, but determines who you are becoming. It determines who you are and how you live, what you love. God has revealed himself to us. Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious. Let's pray together. And right now in this moment, there may be some of you who, uh, who have some misery or some mess to bring to God right now. Maybe some area in your life that you are holding out on him. Some area of your life that you're hiding from other people. Some area of your life that you know is is out of step with what God wants for you. And right now you need to bring that to him. To know that, that, that that thing in your life doesn't make him recoil from you, but makes him move towards you in compassion and grace. May you experience his compassion and grace right now. Our Father, we thank you for the way in which this this little passage tells us so much about your heart. Tells us so much about who you are and who you want us to become. May we receive your compassion and grace and extend it to the world. And we pray all this 
In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus was the incarnation of Yahweh, the incarnation of compassion and grace. And he allowed his body to be ripped and torn. He allowed himself to be slaughtered on the cross rather than breaking the promises of God to you and to me. And so we come to communion to be reminded of that. To be reminded of the extent of his love for us expressed in his body broken and his blood poured out. And so we take the wafer and we remember the words of the Apostle Paul who said that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together now. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise, the new access to God that comes through my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together now. Paul says, as often as we eat this bread, And we drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And friends, we now have the opportunity to proclaim back to God in worship who we believe him to be. So if you're here in the room, would you stand as we worship together in response to the compassion and grace of God? Let's worship together. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.